The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We give thee our thanks, O Lord our God, for thy great kindness and grace toward us in the Son of thine own love, whom thou hast endeared to us through the gospel word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We therefore draw near to thee, the triune God, and acknowledge thee as our God, our King, our Father, our Elder Brother, our Comforter, our constant guardian and guide, and our heavenly home. We pray that through thy word thou wilt help us to realize that the way on which we are traveling is temporary, but has that sure and everlasting destination in thy presence when we shall be not only forever with the Lord, but forever like him. And we pray then that thou wilt help us forward on our pilgrimage and enable us to depend upon thee to bring us safely home. Pardon our sins, grant thy blessing on thy word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Be seated, please. We turn to the closing verses of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God. The Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So far, the reading of God's word. A little while ago, I suggested that we might add the words by faith uh, at the opening of the 20th verse of this great chapter in order to bring out uh, what Adam was actually doing when, surrounded by death, he gave to his wife, whom he had already named, another name, namely the name Eve, connected with the word live or living and Adam by faith in spite of all the circumstances that surrounded him and the conditions that he now knew within his own mind and heart he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living this morning I'm going to suggest that we add the words in mercy uh, to the verses that follow that 20th verse 
The words that we've read record two acts of the Lord God. The first is his clothing of Adam and Eve, and then his expelling them from the garden. Uh, To put the words in mercy before those acts might raise a few questions. Because is there not an element of judgment in what those verses record? sure. But they are an example of mercy rejoicing over judgment, or mercy triumphing over judgment, as, the, uh, as James in his letter actually expressed. Uh, and then the first relates obviously to an existing need, or an imminent need, that Adam and his wife had, seeing as they were to be no longer in the garden, but in a hostile world. What then about the second? The second refers to a possible danger. And mercy is not only... Mercy does not only provide, it also prevents. And therefore, we can think of God's mercy in connection with both these acts, and that's what I propose to do very quickly. First of all, by way of the mercy that provides, this 21st verse, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Sadly, I think this verse is often turned to as if all that it had to say to us was something about the origin of blood sacrifice. That, of course, is not to be excluded from this statement, but it's certainly not the place to begin. We need to look at this statement in the light of the verses that precede it in relation to Adam and Eve and all the aspects of their being. And when we do that, this provision of garments of skin for them, we can see as being an act of mercy on God's part to them as physical beings. They are no more to be in paradise. They're going to be expelled from the garden of God. They're going to experience environmental change. They've been told that thorns and thistles, hurt and harm, all related to danger, await them. Soon nature will be read in tooth and claw. And God is not inhuman. He knows the frame of his creatures. He remembers that their dust he provides. He provides them with suitable clothing and that provides the basis and a classic example for our doing good to all men especially those who are of the household of faith for the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works he is the saviour of all in the sense that he is the benefactor he is the one who remembers frailty and provides for it. And so that was an act of mercy to them as physical beings, but also, of course, an act of mercy to them as spiritual beings. They had tried to cover their sense of shame and guilt because of the sin that they'd committed. Filled with fear and guilt, uh, they took leaves of fig trees in order to conceal themselves from themselves and to conceal themselves 
to conceal each from the other and both from God. As such, they were in ungodly dread. But believing God's gracious word of promise about the seed of the woman who had bruised the head of the serpent, God responds to that faith. And what he does is to provide for them something far better than fig leaves. He provides for them tunics of skin. The word, as you know, is used for the covering of the ark. It comes from the priest's garments. And note that he not only provides, he dresses. He not only provides what will deal with and cover shame and fear and guilt, but he actually puts clothes on those whom he pardons and cleanses. He provides a righteousness on the basis of a sacrifice by way of imputation. It's all there. This was an act of mercy to them, making them acceptable to him, providing them with access to him as priests, mercy to them as spiritual beings, both male and female. Now, equal access, equal acceptance to God, equal access to him in worship and prayer. But what about the closing three verses? In mercy he provides for them as sinful beings. Still, he provides for them as sinful beings. Now, it might seem that the acts of the Lord God in these final three verses are hardly compatible with mercy. Are they not utterly excessive? Because what do they consist in? On the one hand, expulsion by the Lord God from his garden. He drove out, very strong verb, he drove out the man into a hostile world. But not only expulsion, exclusion, exclusion by the Lord God from ever getting back to it within his earthly life. And he stations an armed guard with a sword that revolves in all directions. The cherubim. There's so much imagery here, isn't there, in connection with the garden related to the tabernacle and to the temples. Even the mention of uh, the word east, the entrance to the temple, points in that direction. Mercy? Hardly. No. Great mercy. Great mercy. Lest. That's the word. There's something conceivably worse than the sin committed and its terrible effects. And it's a real possibility in the estimate of God as he now views the situation existing. Something has to be prevented at all costs. And so it's a severe mercy that is put into effect in expelling and excluding. 
What was that possibility? Lest the man should reach, take, eat. Think of what those verbs connote. Personalize them. Lest the man should reach, take, eat of the tree of life. It's not to be done now. Now, it might have been done before. Because Adam and his wife had not been forbidden to eat of the tree of life, as they had with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Might have been done before then. Or eating from the tree of life might have been reserved as a reward for that probation successfully passed, obedience actually performed. But whatever, it's the now, it's the current situation that is being addressed here. Things being as they are, If they ate before, they are no longer to eat. If they were to eat, they can no longer eat. As you say, it's a no-no. Here you have an unfinished sentence, don't you? Now, there are unfinished sentences in the Old Testament. I had fainted. And you read, unless I had believed. Supplied. But those are the words of man, as it were. These are the words of God. You never have an unfinished sentence in the Old Testament with regard to God. And here you have it. What does that literary device do? It's expressive of strong emotion or swift action, one or the other. An unfinished sentence, put it into effect. There's something urgent about it. There's an immediate need. That was the possibility. Well, was it a real possibility? The very fact that God declares it to be is enough. But no, there's a clue here. Not only is there that little word lest, there's that word behold. That the NIV unaccountably omits time and time again. Behold! Something has happened which is of colossal significance and importance. Here's the reason. Why that possibility cannot be excluded. It's this, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Because that's the case, who knows what he might do? Behold, the man has become like one of us, God and the angels. Here, what is being referred to is the kind of knowledge of good and evil that God and the angels share. Not omniscience, not uh, perfect uh, knowledge, total knowledge, but a knowledge about good and evil that they share. What could that be but this? 
and you'll know that there are other interpretations of this verse. The kind of knowledge that they share is the kind of knowledge that they experienced with the rise and and revolt of Satan himself and his hosts. They experienced evil in reality in connection with Satan's revolt. And now, the man and his wife no longer know good and evil merely by the word of the Lord declaring to them what is good and what is evil. They have actually entered into a knowledge of good and evil that is something like demonic. Isn't sin devilish? Isn't the wisdom that is from beneath devilish? Isn't the sin that is in your mind and heart and mine devilish? And now in this current situation, Adam, faced with the reality of expulsion from Eden, faced with the fact of death, unavoidable, and a sinner, might he not snatch at life? That's the way I read this statement anyway. And what if he did? What if he did? If he had, then banished from the presence of God for the rest of his life. Toil and strife for the rest of his life. Sin and alienation from God for the rest of his life. No way back for him or for his descendants into the paradise of God. If he had a right to eat of that tree, Let's say he did. It was a reminder to him of the life that he had. It didn't convey life to him. It wasn't magical. It was a reminder to him that the God who had planted that tree was the God who had gave him that rich and abundant life that he was enjoying. But it was bound up by obeying the word about the other tree on pain of death. So eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, disobeying God brought about death. If he now were to snatch at that other tree, he doesn't have the right to do so. And that's why when in the New Testament, the tree of life is referred to, it's connected with right. We don't have a right Adam didn't, Eve didn't, we don't as a result. We need a right to go to the tree of life. We need someone to come and endure that holy wrath of God symbolized by the cherubim's sword and open up the way to the tree of life for us. And he did. 
Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be in their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let us pray. We give thee our thanks, O Lord our God, that thou hast opened up the way to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And by thy grace, through the gospel and the merit of thy Son and the ministry of the Spirit, granted us a fortest of it. But our experience of our own sinfulness and waywardness, the plaguing of the evil one, the fallen world in which we live seems at times to be far greater and stronger than that which we know of life eternal. Uphold us in faith in thy promise. Bring us at the last into thy heavenly home where nothing that defiles or deceives can enter or that makes a lie. Receive our thanks for thy Son, his righteousness, the seed of the woman, our Saviour. Grant us thy blessing for his sake. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.